While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. About the time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers and related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized Gaius and Astarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him to not venture into the theater. The assembly was a confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image who fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to cl- calm down and do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges if there is anything further you want to bring up. It must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. 
When the Apostle Paul was converted, God said two things about him. He said, first, Paul is going to be a light to the nations. And secondly, he said, Paul, I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my name. In other words, Paul's life was full of ups and downs and triumphs and trials, much like many of our lives. And I want to be asked, beginning today throughout the month of August, what did Paul discover in his trials that can perhaps help us in ours. And that's what we're going to look at for the next four weeks as we finish up really our look at the book of Acts. And the reason I think this is important is because no matter who you are or where you're from today, you're either in the middle of something, in the middle of some kind of trial, or you will face one in the future. Today we begin this series uh, looking at a story that sort of launches this last section of the book and this story is really all about a riot. Uh, It's about a riot in the ancient city of Ephesus. Paul goes there, stuff happens, he's nearly killed for it, a church gets started, you know, all in a day's work for an apostle, right? To quote the godfather here, What's happening with Paul isn't personal. It's strictly business. His culture doesn't like his faith. They resist, they attack what he's got to say. How does Paul deal with this? And because in this story, it's his faith, it's the Christian faith that's on trial in the court of public opinion. And in many ways, just like throughout history, the Christian faith really is on trial in the court of public opinion today in our culture as well. And so I want to ask, how can we, how can you as a Christian person, how can you handle it when it's your faith that's on trial in the court of public opinion around you? How can we deal with it uh, when our friends or our coworkers or our families or our parents or fathers, our professors, our roommates, our thousand closest friends on Facebook, how can we deal with it when they have a hard time with what we believe? When they perhaps reject us, condemn us for choices we feel compelled to make? What do we do? When we feel like our faith is what's on trial, I think this passage points us to do four things today. It points us to look backward, to look inward, look outward, and finally, to look upward. Let's begin at number one and see what it means to look backward. Um, I'll begin this way. If uh, you wanted to divide the 20th century last century, into three sections. Uh, if you look at the first section, the first you know, half of the century, uh, it was a time when Christianity was by and large privileged, wasn't it, in culture. Christianity was in a position of power. Decent people were Christians. And if you weren't a Christian, if you were a skeptic or an atheist, you were considered a crank and not a decent person because decent people were Christians. But by the time you get to the middle of the 20th century, we saw a massive shift in our culture. The, the leaders of our, our social, our academic institutions began to confidently predict a future without God, a future without religion, a future without faith. Our cultural leaders believed that we would just shed our religious skin like a snake would shed its skin because now we had science, you know, to quote Nacho Libre. You know, I believe in science. <laughs> we had science and empirical investigation. And so now that we knew how stuff to work, we would have a religionless, godless, faithless future. 
John Lennon of the Beatles famously said this. He said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. And he said, I will be proved right by this. Except he wasn't. Except he wasn't. Actually, our culture has gone the total opposite way. And let me give you one quick illustration of how you can see just that. Take the shows and the movies of Star Trek. Of course, you're all looking for this today, right? Star Trek. If you want to look at how quickly and actually decisively our culture rejected John Lennon's future, look at the difference, for example, between Captain Kirk and Captain Picard. In the original Star Trek, there was almost no mention of religion at all. None of the crew members were people of faith, and that was on purpose. And when the people of the good ship Enterprise encountered the rare people who had religion, what would happen? Their religion was always a fake. It's always a phony. And science could explain the religion. And science and the science-loving, intrepid crew of the Enterprise free the people from being puppets of their religious leaders. This was the future. Captain Kirk confidently showed us, one without religion. And, you know, for all of you, let's say, non-sci-fi fans out there, Star Trek was kind of like a, a futuristic Scooby-Doo. There, now I'm talking some of your language. Scooby-Doo, right, made during the same era. None of the monsters are ever real. And the smart, science-minded detective kids always reveal that what you thought was supernatural really wasn't. In Scooby-Doo, the supernatural only existed to keep people frightened, right? Until those pesky kids got involved, right? And exposed the fakes who were just in a position of power who abused the supernatural to keep people under control. Of course, to steal the money from the museum or whatever. But 25 years later, by the time we get from Star Trek 1 to Star Trek 2, by the time we get to Picard, there's lots of religions, right? Lots of faiths. Every person has his or her own faith to be respected. Now in the new shows, the new movies, it's not really science. It's the prime directive, right, that we believe in. It's non-interference. Don't judge anyone else. Why? Because today, the shows just reflect our culture, it's not that science isn't believed, it's just that everything's believed. Everything's believed. Everyone's got their truth, right? Today, everyone's got their own God, many gods, many answers, many idols, many ways. And the reason why that is true today isn't because that science is bad at all. No, science is amazing. Aren't you glad for the future that's been created for us in many ways by scientific advancement? But the reason we're in Picard's future and not in Kirk's future, John Lennon's future, is because science alone can never answer the deepest questions of the human heart. Science alone can never answer the question, why are we here? Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? How do I handle my trials, my sufferings? What happens after I die? And why do we know that love and beauty are real things and not just chemical reactions in our brain? See, we live in a world much more like the Apostle Paul's than John Lennon's. And that ought to give you hope, and here's why. Because, here's why, because it was in the middle of that kind of world, one full of idols and ideas, that Christianity flourished. It was in the middle of that kind of culture that the Christian faith shined the brightest. It wasn't in a culture where Christianity was privileged. It was in a world where Christianity was persecuted. I mean, look at this passage. Just a few verses, right? There's talk of temples, idols, shrines, gods, goddesses, and we're not too far from that today. 
And by no means am I saying that's a good thing. No, we've got a lot of work to do in our culture. But if you're here and you're feeling discouraged or despondent about the state of faith in the U.S., let me tell you something. I am not despondent at all. Because the church today, it's not in decline as much as it's being defined. Will the real Christian please stand up? Please stand up. And if we'll just look backward here, yeah, 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 to our future, excuse me, look backward to our roots, we'll see that now, now we have the chance to shine like stars in our culture, offering the word of life to them like never before. Number one, we look backward, but how can we do that? Number two, we look inward. Look at how these first Christians impacted their culture. It says many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together, burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This is showing us that the Christian church begins to make a difference in a city and will make a difference in our city when people's lives begin to be changed from the inside out. These new Christians in Ephesus, they brought the things that were empowering the forces of darkness in their own lives and they destroyed them publicly with no regret. And this, of course, is going to look different from every person. We've all got our own scrolls to burn so to speak. Recently, I woke up one morning to pray because I'm like a Christian minister. I'm supposed to do these things, you see. No, because I want to. And I picked up a little book by a guy named, a writer named Henri Nguyen. Perhaps you've heard of him. And a Catholic priest became a, someone who worked in a mentally handicapped hospital for many years. And I had read his little book called The Way of the Heart before. And, uh, but I was going through it again and I came to this chapter on prayer. I began to pray, Lord, teach me uh, the way of the heart. I want to know your heart. I want to be able to give your heart away to people. And uh, in that chapter on prayer, Nguyen makes a statement that true prayer is prayer of the heart. Not necessarily long prayers, but deep prayers, inside prayers, prayers from the heart. So I thought, I'm going to pray the deepest thing I can pray. The thing that's deepest within me, the prayer my heart prayed at the deepest level. Now, uh, because I'm like a minister and words are coming out of my mouth right now, you're about to think, oh, he's going to tell me something good that he prayed, right? But it's not. So don't amen me accidentally and save yourself the embarrassment as I tell you what I prayed. I prayed this. I prayed, God, help me not to miss you because I don't want to miss what I'm supposed to do. Help me not to blow it. Now that sounds nice, right? A lot of people in our church, a lot of people in the city who need Jesus, that prayer sounds, you know, pretty nice, pretty noble. But in that moment, Holy Spirit rushed in and showed me that if my heart's deepest cry is for God to help me not to blow it, then my heart's deepest cry is just to avoid failure. I discovered that I was using God to avoid failure. I had this idol of the fear of failure that was insisting that everything, including God, bow down to it. Began to repent in the moment, asked God to change my heart because I thought, how can, oh God, how can ministry, I have ministry, be pure if there's impurity flowing 
out of me? How can I taste sweet to your heart today as, as people in this church if there's impurity somewhere? How can I, my, my preaching, how can our ministry, how can my fathering or friendship be authentic and helpful to you if there's death at the core? See, my prayer should be, God, help me not to miss you because I don't want to miss you. I just want you. And listen, you say, well, that's kind of challenging. Yeah, it is. But if we, you know, if we don't do this, if we don't look inward first and see how God wants to change our lives, do you know who we become? Oh, we become just like the man Demetrius in this story because Demetrius in this story was an idol maker in Ephesus. His chief concern was his own life, his own financial situation because you can see when he feels like it's the impact of Jesus, the impact of Christianity is going to result in his losing money. What does he say? He gathers his you know, work buddies. He says, all right, guys, you know, my friends, we receive a good income. From this business, there's danger that not only our trade is going to lose its name, oh, but yeah, the temple of the great God Artemis is going to be discredited. In other words, yeah, fellas, our beliefs are important, but above all else, let's make sure we maintain our lifestyle. What's true or not true isn't as important as making money and getting paid. See, he's saying our faith, our gods exist to support us and our idols. But listen, when Christianity, when Jesus moves into your life, like C.S. Lewis said, you know, you imagined uh, he just wanted to renovate a room, but he's really wanting to build a whole new house. Jesus is going to affect everything about your life, your motives, your finances, your relationships, how you treat your spouse, how you spend your money. Why? Because Christians, before they ever have the authority to look outward into a culture, must first look inward into their own hearts. That's what gives us our voice. And when we don't do that, we lose our voice. Flannery O'Connor is a great short story writer. She was a, a Christian herself. She wrote an unforgettable little story called A Good Man is Hard to Find. I'm sure some of you single ladies would say amen to that. But uh, it's, a dark, it's a dark story, but it's really witty. It's about a family who's on a road trip, and they leave this cafe, the Tower Cafe, the Tower of Babel, and they, they show them they, they can't get along, they fight, they can't agree. Uh, they're selfish to the core, especially the grandmother who's negative and critical and racist. And then the family car breaks down on the side of the road, and along comes an escaped serial killer named the Misfit, the Misfit, and his band of outlaws. And what happens is... It's dark, I told you. The family's carried off into the woods and executed one by one until the grandmother is the only one left. And she begins to plead for her life and then all of a sudden, facing the end of a gun, facing the barrel of a gun in her face, all of a sudden she gets religious on the misfit. And she begins to tell him about Jesus, all about Jesus, how Jesus wants to change his life. They didn't really have to do this because Jesus will change a man's life. But the misfit begins to hear her talk about Jesus. He cuts her off and says this. He said, Jesus, oh, Jesus, thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can, killing somebody, burning down his house, or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure, but meanness. 
And later, Flannery O'Connor, writing about this story, said it was actually the serial killer who understood the person of Jesus better than the grandmother, the proud old grandmother, who only tried to use her faith to get herself out of trouble. When she was in a pinch, she never applied her faith to herself. She never looked inward. What did the misfit understand? Oh, we understood that if Jesus is who he said he was, then it's nothing, just like for these Christians here in Ephesus to do. Nothing like it is for us to do, to throw away everything, to look inward, burn some kind of scroll, some kind of, perhaps for you business people, some business practice you need to burn. Some kind of way of treating your spouse you need to burn. Some time of spending time outside your family you know is killing your wife, killing your kids. Burn that thing. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. To face a culture, to face people who put our faith on trial, we must look inward first. And if we'll do that, then number three, now we can look outward. All right, what causes, again, this whole disturbance in the force here, right? There's Star Trek and Star Wars, same sermon, hashtag winning. All right, what causes this, what causes the riot here in Ephesus? Well, in a way, it's the people, yeah, but it's actually fueled by something else. Look at what it was. It says, when they heard this, these were Demetrius's buddies. They were furious. They began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city's in an uproar. They seized Gaius, Aristarchus. All of them rushed in the theater together. So there's confusion. There's this riot beginning to break out. Paul's buddies are seized. The whole city goes nuts. And they shout, not just here, but later, two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, can you imagine? Why is this? Well, it was because, of course, the Christians had begun to come into the city And after these Christians had looked inward, gotten free from idols themselves, burned their scrolls, forsaken their sorcery, they began to look outward and address the idols in the Roman culture. And in Ephesus, you may know, the main idol wasn't just the temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the world, by the way. It was money because Ephesus was a wealthy city. People came to the temple. People came and spent money to go to the temple. Tourism was what made the city go. And tourism was centered around the temple. And if the temple was threatened, their lifestyle was threatened. See, greed was the idol that fueled the riot. And greed was actually such a common struggle for people coming to faith in Christianity that later when Paul writes the book of mm, Ephesians, you know, written to the church in Ephesus, when he gets to chapter five and he begins to list sins and calls out sins that people must get free of, when he comes to money, when he comes to greed, he stops and pauses and he said, be free from greed, which is idolatry, which is idolatry. Paul connects the love of money and idolatry in a way he doesn't connect anything else. See, greed was the real idol of the city. And Christians began to look outward into their culture. They began to call out what they saw. And this is going to be the mark of a true church, one that hasn't just capitulated to the culture or fits in seamlessly and nicely. And Paul, wherever he went in his travels, he did this and it caused him a lot of trouble, as we know. But why? Why does Paul always insist on doing this? You know, why can't he just be a nice guy? Why do these early Christians always look outward? Well, here's why. We can see Paul's motivation 
from a verse we read last week. I want to bring it back to you. Acts 17, when Paul goes into Athens, another Greek city, Roman city, he says this was what, this is what's going on in his heart. Acts 17, 16 says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, look at this, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Paul was looking outward into a culture and what he saw broke his heart. I want to ask you today, what breaks your heart about our culture? What provokes your spirit? What gets you fired up when you read the news? What fires you about the state of the world? Listen, perhaps the greatest mark you'll ever leave on the world is by doing something about the very thing that provokes your heart, distresses your spirit, the NIV says. Well, let me ask you, but does, does anything at all provoke your spirit? Does anything at all distress you? If nothing provokes you, nothing distresses you, chances are you, I, we, we've already assimilated into our culture. We may have begun to be a part of a system that just erodes our faith after time. What provokes your spirit? For some of you, maybe the treatment of women in our culture, right? Some of you, maybe the massive economic inequality we see growing under our noses. It may be brokenness in families, fatherlessness. What is it? What provokes your spirit? One thing that provokes my spirit is the brokenness our culture experiences over the issue of race of the issue of race, the tragic, sordid history our nations have with people of color. One side of my family is steeped in racism. Grew up seeing Confederate flags in people's homes. Family members fought for the Confederacy, family members who had sharecroppers on their land, inward jokes tossed around. I know one who owned a noose for lynching. And while I never personally participated in any of that, there's no question that the strains of that, the the teachings of that made its way into my thinking. And I'm grateful that when Jesus saved me, he did so right in the middle of a multi-ethnic campus ministry, which set me on a journey of learning how to confront and lay down the racism I didn't ask for, but I learned. And because Jesus has, he continues to deliver me from racism, just like he continues to deliver me from pride or fear any other sin. That's why I'm so passionate about what we are, about who you are, about what we are together. Because I don't just believe, I know firsthand how it has the power to heal and transform lives. What provokes your spirit? Oh, I bet it just might be something you have been delivered from or freed from yourself. Listen, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be afraid that sooner or later, as we begin to address and call out idols in our culture, that we cause problems. Hear me. When a culture's dominant narrative When a culture's dominant story, when the story it tells itself is threatened, that culture doubles down on that narrative, doubles down on that story. Just like these Ephesians here, their way of life is threatened. Their story is threatened, so they double down on their identity. Listen, we don't go looking for trouble. No, but we shouldn't be surprised as a church. You shouldn't be surprised as a Christian person that the surrounding culture gives you grief. People don't like your stuff online or they don't like you. Listen, 50 years ago, as we saw, people hated the fact about what the Bible said about the supernatural. Today, our culture doesn't like what the Bible says about sex and about gender. Tomorrow, 50 years later, it's going to be something else. To be the church of Jesus just requires we look outward and we begin to address the idols in our culture. 
why? You say, why? Why do we have to do that? Here's why. Because only Jesus saves. Idols don't deliver. Idols ensnare. Idols dispose of you. Your money's using you. Your culture is using you. It doesn't love you. It can't free you. It's not going to save you. It's not going to hold your hand when you're cornering your mouth is dribbling saliva at the end of your life. It's not going to do that. Jesus loves you. He alone only saves. We shouldn't be so afraid of being popular, of being liked. We forsake our calling to be salt and light in our city. We look backward. We look inward. We look outward. Now where can we get the power for all of that? Number four, we look in the end upward. Upward. Remember how I said just a moment ago, I assume you're paying attention, that when a culture's dominant narrative is threatened, when the story it tells itself is under fire, a culture, a city can't handle it. Yeah. Well, what was the dominant story of this city of Ephesus? What was the the thing they told themselves about who they were? Well, after the people chant for two hours great as Artemis of the Ephesians, the city clerk, who's really the mayor, that's what the word means, the mayor of the city finally calms down, everybody down, and he reminds them of their story. Verse 35, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is what? The guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and what? Of her image, which fell from heaven. Wow, isn't that interesting? He said, listen, we all believe in this God, goddess Artemis, because we've got a legend in our culture. Legend has it. The story goes that Artemis fell from heaven to earth in this spot. And that's why we believe in her. And of course, we hear that today and we say, well, sure, right, you know, snap the knuckles. That's just another legend. We know how many stories ancient cultures had about legends and myths about gods coming down from heaven, from the sky. That's how they made themselves, you know, too legit to quit is what they did to prove who they were. It's natural, natural for us today to say, well, when it comes to Jesus, oh, this is just the same thing, right? Same thing. Just another spin on the old legend wheel. Heard this one before, but wait, wait, wait. What if, what if just like with these Ephesians here, there's a reason almost every culture has looked up over time throughout history to the same kind of thing. And what if that reason that every culture has done this points us to a larger truth, to a bigger story, to a truer image, to the true one from heaven? Many years ago, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the great fantasy writer, was walking in Addison's Way in Oxford University with a friend of his, a famous atheist you may have heard of. And while they were walking along, they were telling stories to one another, uh, fairy tales, and they were talking about how different fairy tales and fantasy stories are different than real life. And uh, they, were, they, they, they noticed that sometimes these stories depicted things like time travel. A character would step out of time. Or there was dramatic escape from death. They would talk about these stories with communication with non-human personal beings. They talked about a love you could never lose, about uh, how good would triumph over evil, but they noted that in the real world, in the factual world, here and now, none of those things really come true. See, everyone loses love, don't they? Either by time or death, chance. Evil triumphs over good. We see people can't really step out of time. 
communicate with non-human personal beings. In the real world, none of those things are true, and yet we keep reading about them, don't we? We keep going to the movies to see them. People keep writing stories about make-believe worlds where love isn't lost, good triumphs over evil, about narrow escapes from death, and all you need for Exhibit A is just to look at the latest Marvel movie. That's how, They're all the same. Same story. Rinse and repeat. They're all about fantasy worlds come to life, about modern-day Little G gods who triumph over evil. And the reason people love them, our culture loves them, is because we feel, we want them to be true. Something true in them or something true about them. And so Tolkien and his friend, C.S. Lewis, by the way, they were walking along talking about, about beauty and the beast, about how a great act of unselfishness, the story shows us, can deliver us from self, about sleeping beauty, about how we don't want death to be an end. We want someone to wake us up from the sleep of death, a love that goes on forever. And they asked, what if there were a hero who could break through the spell and wake us to life with his touch? And C.S. Lewis, the skeptic, of course, at the time, he said this, frustrated with the conversation, he said this, oh, but myths are lies, though breathed through silver. He's saying, they sound too good to be true. And Tolkien stopped him on the way right then, and he said, no, they're not. Not all these are lies. And he said, consider this, Clive. That was the C and C as Lewis. He said, consider this story about the young man from the provinces, uh, the diamond in the rough, the one who's incorruptible, evil, can't touch him. He loves children. He loves the poor. He brings people back from a dead. He heals the sick, but then he's betrayed, and he's put to death, but then he rises from the dead. He said, whose story does that sound like? And Lewis said, it just sounds like another legend, another myth of someone come down from heaven. But Tolkien said to him, it's not, it's not. And what he was saying is this, is that Jesus is not just another legend, another myth at all. It's just about another myth or another legend. But no, he is the fact. He is the true story, the true image that all other myths, all other legends point to in the end. And you know something? Our hearts yearn for this. They long for this to be true. We all yearn for an image to fall from heaven for us. Uh, About a year ago, I was at a campus meeting at the University of Texas talking to a young skeptic there. And I asked him, I said, is there anything that could convince you to believe in God? And he said, no, There's not. There's nothing. Absolutely not. But then he paused and he said, except. He said, well, what? I want to hear this. He said, except if there were a real God, if he would come down from heaven and put skin on and walk among us and tell us who he is, then I would believe. (laughs) I about fell over, of course. I said... I said, would you like to come into our meeting tonight? (laughs) And he said he would. I said, that's exactly what the Bible says. He said, I had no idea. See, what was happening? It's happening. That's why we do campus ministry, by the way. For a moment, he was looking upward, right? Beyond himself, for something beyond himself, the ultimate desire of his heart to know a real God, personal God, who loved him. And that's true. 
But listen, the Christian gospel is even better than that. Because it says that this God, not only to save and rescue his people, but to prove his love for you, to prove his love for your heart today, to prove what it's like, that he knows what it's like to go through trials, to be misunderstood, to be mocked and abandoned as he died, as he was being put to death by his enemies. He cried out, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was truly abandoned for what he believed, truly forsaken for what he believed, truly outcast so that we could be brought in and held forever by the arms of our Father. See, Jesus is the true image from heaven, the one who knows what you are facing today. And if you lack strength for any trial, let me tell you, look to him today. Because when he came, Jesus, oh, he looked backward too. He looked back to all the stories, the promises, the covenants of God to the people of Israel. And he reminded them of how God had delivered them through the Red Sea from a nation full of idols. He looked inward. And he said at one point, my God, not my will, but yours be done. And he looked outward and he called the people around him to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves. And as he looked upward, he trusted that his father would deliver him no matter what. Hebrews 12, 3 says this, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful people so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How do we not lose heart today? We look to Jesus. We look backward, inward, outward, and upward.